0: Hey, I'm Jody Butts, and welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. It's been a long, risky year, in large part due to COVID 19 and its sprawling health and economic consequences. Thanks to the development of effective vaccines, we can finally see some light at the end of the pandemic tunnel. Let's be buoyed by this over the holidays, but not get too ahead of ourselves either. What about this last mile of our COVID-19 journey? What are the potential bottlenecks and stumbling points that we should be looking out for? What should we be considering to ensure we reach our zero COVID-19 destination? To explore these questions, I'm joined by Helen Branswell. Helen is Stat News's infectious diseases and global health reporter. She's Canadian and was introduced to epidemic reporting during Toronto's SARS outbreak in 2003. In the years since, she has written about bird flu, the H1N1 flu pandemic, Ebola, Zika, and now leads stats coverage of the coronavirus pandemic. Helen spent the summer of 2004 embedded at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention as a CDC Knight Fellow. In 2010 and 11, she was a Neiman Global Health Fellow at Harvard, where she focused on polio eradication. Nobody covers the COVID-19 vaccine beat more thoughtfully or with more rigor than Helen. Our journey to this point has been long. Let's not stumble now with the end in sight. Lucky for us, Helen Branswell has us covered. Thank you for joining me, Helen, and welcome to At Risk.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Helen You've written extensively about infectious diseases throughout your career. And as of late, you've written volumes uh, on the coronavirus pandemic, and specifically the COVID-19 vaccine. About that vaccine, you've said, if we're not careful we could fail to take full advantage of the opportunity that scientists and governments and pharmaceutical companies and philanthropic foundations have created for us. What do we need to be most careful about?
1: Oh, lots of things. Um, I think, you know, primarily there, I was thinking about um, vaccine hesitancy, uh, you know, addressing what are legitimate concerns amongst people about uh, new vaccine platforms, completely new vaccine platforms that could on the surface sound a bit scary. Um, Ensuring that there's demand for vaccine, because at least in the United States, there's there seems to be an assumption on the part of Operation Warp Speed, the government program to fast track this work, that if they build it, they will come. And I'm not certain. And I think a lot of experts are not certain that the demand is going to be massive at the beginning. We'll, we'll have to see. But the other thing is obviously, um, and you probably want to unpack this a bit later because this is a lot, but um, There's the whole issue of how much we're going to get from vaccines in the near term and how much they're going to allow us to let down our guard and try to return to normal life. I I think people who think that we're going to, you know, instantly be able to doff our masks are going to be disappointed and um, we're just going to have to be careful during the rollout, I think.
0: Yeah. In many ways, the name Operation Warp Speed really makes you cringe. Firstly, it reminds you of fictional science from Star Trek. And secondly, it kind of implies rushed.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of people who wish they hadn't chosen that name It apparently came from Peter Marks, the director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. He came up with the idea of this fast-tracking thing, and he's apparently a Star Trek fan. So that's where Operation Warp Speed came from. But, you know, people in public health and people who turn vaccine into vaccinations and know about the difficulty of doing that really did like you cringe when, when they heard that because, um, you know, the last thing you want to be doing is implying to the public that these vaccines are slapdash or that, you know, corners were cut. And you mentioned distrust of the vaccine, the need
0: to build up demand. There's even hesitancy in healthcare workers, correct?
1: Yeah, that's not new. Um, You know, if you talk to any infection control person in any large hospital in Canada, they'll talk to you about um, the challenges of getting staff to get flu vaccines every winter. You know, there there are some healthcare workers who don't love getting, Thing vaccinations and um, with this one, you know, it's brand new, and I think there are people like everybody else, and they may have some concerns. One of the things that we may have going for us on the hesitancy front is that you know the two vaccines that have that seem to be at the front of the pack have quite extraordinary early estimates of efficacy. I mean, way higher than anybody was expecting, 95%. Um, that may help to assuage some of the hesitancy. You know, there's initially, people were talking about the fact that these vaccines might not be that um, immunogenic, that they might not trigger such a strong immune immune response that they might be sort of like flu shots and a lot of people feel fairly indifferent to flu shots they don't think they get enough bang for the buck but if you're talking about a vaccine that is 95% effective that may sway some people
0: yes i i think that's right uh, sometimes people really get tripped up on the numbers with the flu vaccine they they will hesitate because they worry that the particular strain of flu that they might be exposed to is not reflected in the flu vaccine that they may receive. Uh, but that's
1: not an issue here, thankfully. Yes, yeah, that's correct. This, that is absolutely not an issue. With flu, the The various types of flu, that, uh, strains that are in the vaccine, they, they evolve very rapidly and, and the flu shot can Uh, miss the target some years. But with uh, COVID-19, there is just one virus. It's not multiple viruses. And um, while it is evolving, it doesn't evolve at the rate that flu does. And, you know, there's no reason at this point to think that it will be off target in the near future.
0: Now, thinking about the rollout, and one of the things we have to be careful about We've poured a lot of money into the development of these vaccines, governments, philanthropic foundations, even the pharmaceutical companies themselves. But a lot of money is required to effectively roll these vaccines out. What are you seeing in the United States? Do local public health authorities feel like they have the funds to actually do this well?
1: No, they don't. I mean, um, there are a couple of groups here that. are sort of the liaisons between government and the people who put vaccines into arms, and they 've been saying for a while now that it 's going to cost about eight billion dollars to get this job done, but the money hasn 't been forthcoming you know instead they 've had several hundreds of millions of dollars not clear i 'm not clear whether that 's tied up in the impasse in Congress about um, you know a stimulus package related to the covid pandemic or or what exactly maybe there's just not an understanding that this is expensive work to do, but you know the last mile of vaccine um, um, of the vaccine project is critical like the, the part that takes the vaccine from the vials and puts it into arms is you know the point that tells you whether or not the project has been successful or not, and um, and it it feels at this point in the United States like it's underfunded, it's being rushed. There, the people who are doing this work are under tremendous pressure from um, the generals who run Operation Warp Speed to be able to put vaccines into arms within twenty four hours of um, the. Um, CDC signing off on recommendations uh, for who should get the vaccine, you know, and people feel like this is both um, an artificial deadline and something that could undermine the success of the rollout because they don't have information sheets yet on the vaccine, because it hasn't been clear how much vaccine was coming in. Um, which vaccine was coming. I mean, there are going to be two coming this month in small supplies, but some supplies in the United States, they're both, they both require, um, you know, a significant cold chain. One, the Pfizer vaccine requires uh, ultra cold chain, knowing which one you're going to get, knowing where, you you know, when you're going to get it. Um, These are all things that are still up in the air for some, uh, in some locations and, and, there's a lot of confusion <laughs> at the ground level. It's, it's going to be a real challenge. And I think, um, I think it's going to be messy. I, I really think it's going to be messy.
0: Now, we're not just vaccinating for vaccination's sake. We are really trying to work towards getting back to some sense of normal. And as I understand it, it's herd immunity that gets us there. Now you mentioned the high efficacy rates of the current vaccines that are going to be made available. What's the influence of the high efficacy rates on this vaccine project and is that a source of hope?
1: Yeah, it is a source of hope for, you know, on a, for a number of reasons, both from an individual point of view, if you get it, you you know, stand a good chance of being protected for some period of time. That's good news, but also from a sort of societal point of view, the more people who are protected, the the less transmission we'll have. Um, we hope that, you know, you, you and your listeners probably already know about this, but one of the big unanswered questions about these vaccines is whether, um, whether they prevent infection or prevent an infection from progressing to, you know, illness and disease. Um, the the studies have all been set up to show the latter. They're looking only for, um, you know, whether or not people got sick with symptoms of COVID in their trial. They're not um, systematically swabbing everybody in their trials to see whether or not they had asymptomatic infections. The reason that's important is if you can still get infected. And but don't get sick. I mean, you benefit from it, but the benefit, the societal benefit from vaccination not, might not be as great. Um, if you can get infected and have a virus replicating in your upper airways, and you still transmit virus, what? effectively could happen is the vaccines could be contributing to the number of people who are walking around as asymptomatic shedders of, of virus. And so that might make it harder to get to herd immunity if, if you know, vaccinated contributing to the onward transmission of, of the SARS-2 virus. Um, we won't know for a while whether that's true or not. What is um, thought, you know, a lot of experts, people like Tony Fauci and, you know, vaccinologists believe that what is likely to happen is if the vaccines don't completely block infection, that they will shut down replication a lot quicker so that even if people can, you know, pick up an an infection, um, that they won't... Um, transmit as much and for, and if they transmit, they will transmit for a shorter period of time so that that may, you know, effectively help to cut how much transmission there is going on in the community.
0: Yes, we've learned so much about this virus in such a truncated period of time, yet there's still some things we don't know about transmission if we knew just a little bit more about transmission, uh, we might be able to be more targeted in our vaccine campaign. But because we still don't quite understand super spreader events and people who may act as super spreaders, uh, we have to take this broader approach to immunizing as many adults as we possibly can.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true. I was talking... Um, I asked Mike Ryan of the WHO, the head of their emergencies program, about herd immunity recently, and that's exactly what he said, you know, that to get to herd immunity, we're pro- probably going to need to know more about transmission dynamics, why super spreading, spreading events, you know, why some people manage to, to trigger super spreading events, um, uh you you know who is doing the most uh, spreading of the, the disease and maybe target them you know with flu it's known that kids really are the ones who amplify transmission of flu and if you think about it in the fall you start to hear about kids getting sick in schools and then as um the weather gets colder you know parents start to get sick and and you know, grandparents start to get sick and, and, and flu moves through the community. It doesn't seem like kids are the, the major vectors of um, COVID-19, but we're not clear who is playing that role in this pandemic. And knowing that could help you try to figure out how to most effectively use vaccine. So fascinating.
0: Now, it may take us a little bit longer than anybody would like uh, for us to get to herd immunity. But before that, when will things start to just feel better? What have you been hearing from the experts on that score?
1: Um, you know, I, I'm almost hesitant to um, to make too many predictions because, uh, you know, this is all predicated on vaccine and vac- the production and distribution of vaccine is such a Difficult and unpredictable business. Um, you know, last evening I was up late writing a story about the fact that Sanofi Pasteur, which is one of the major vaccine production companies of the world, has had a setback in its uh, COVID nineteen vaccine production. You know, in 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 their Efforts to try to speed up production of their vaccine, they used some commercial reagents in their um, to to assess how much antigen they had in their vaccine vials, and they got the wrong reading. So they ended up giving um, people in their. Clinical trial too little vaccine, and did, saw disappointing uh, results in seniors when they were trying to figure out why the vaccine didn't be, appear to be working in that group, which is of course the pivotal group for um, COVID vaccines. They discovered this this problem with the reagents, and so they're having to you know step back, redo some work, and and reestimate. When they're going to be able to get vaccine to market, uh, they're now looking at potentially uh, the second quarter or the excuse me the second half of 2021. These are people who were projecting being able to make a billion doses of vaccine in 2021. If they their vaccine doesn't start to roll out until you know, towards the end of the year, that's going to affect how much vaccine there is available in the world to get the job done. Um, I don't want to be a doomsayer. I had been thinking that, um, you know, by next summer, next fall, things would be getting to the point where we would feel more normal, but it could be that it might take a little longer than that. and, And I think we need to sort of build that into our expectations. Um, you know, we have tools with which to deal with this thing if we would choose to use them effectively. Uh, we're not helpless, but, um, you know, it may take a while to get enough vaccine to vaccinate a substantial portion of our populations.
0: Yes, I think if there's any lesson of 2020, it's that the future is hard to predict. Um, but 2020 also contained uh, some mini lessons, and certainly one of them was the difficulties associated with supply chains.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes, that's absolutely true. I mean people people who have been you know working in the pandemic preparedness sphere uh, f- have been predicting this for years uh from from interviews I've done over the years I you know I was fully expecting there to be supply chain problems I wasn't anticipating how quickly they would start to manifest themselves I mean the fact that the United States was running out of PPE for healthcare workers in like February and early March really stunned me. You know, I guess we need to be thinking more about that as we go forward. Yes, absolutely.
0: Um, And speaking of supply chain chain challenges, I must say, uh, well, look, I'm not a clinician. I worked at Mount Sinai Hospital for a number of years, but that doesn't make me an expert by any stretch. But when I sit back and think about the public policy challenges, uh, the logistical challenges, communication challenges, and acceptance challenges. It's hard for me to imagine that a two-dose vaccine that has such stringent cold chain requirements is going to be the pathway to herd immunity for us. Are there any other vaccines on the horizon Are we going to have more tools in our toolbox or are these the two that we're going to have to focus on and rely on, on our pathway to a better future?
1: So for the globe, you know, I share your, your skepticism that, um, the mRNA vaccines as they are currently formulated can be the global answer, um, people point to the fact that Ebola vaccine, the Ebola vaccine that was designed at the lab in Winnipeg, um, that Merck has been able to get that vaccine, which requires ultra cold chain to very low resource settings in DRC and in West Africa to, to, to vaccinate in Ebola outbreaks. But, you know, you're talking there about, um, You know, a a precise event involving some tens, or at minimum, some hundreds of thousands of people, for a short period of time—it's a whole different thing to try to think about how to um, operationalize that across the entire globe. Uh, I, I, it, it does feel like that can't be the best answer there is. It would be very resource intensive and, and not practical. I think, Um, you know, certainly there's been a ton of hope that the uh, vaccine that Oxford university designed and that's being developed by AstraZeneca, uh, you know, who has uh, promised to make it available at a no profit on a no profit basis. Um, There's been a ton of hope that that vaccine, which doesn't require ultra-cold chain, could be uh, both produced in multiple parts of the world and distributed more easily in low-resource settings. You know, that vaccine is further behind than it expected to be at this point, than its manufacturers expected it to be at this point. And um, it's not clear yet how efficacious it is. They had some unusual results um, showing 62% efficacy in people who got two full doses which is quite a disappointment given that the mRNA vaccines are coming in around 95 percent and some people by accident got a half dose for their first vaccine and a full dose for their booster shot and there they saw much higher efficacy but the you know the number of people in that arm of the trial was very small and it's not clear that those results are statistically solid. So, um, you know, I, that vaccine, I think, will play a role, but it's it's not yet clear how quickly it's going to be rolled out and how efficacious it's going to be in comparison to some of the others. Um, Johnson & Johnson is developing um, a vaccine that... It hopes could be delivered in a one-dose regimen, which would be much easier to operationalize, um, and it is also one that can be stored at fridge temperature. Not, it doesn't require ultra cold chain. Um, so, they are. I think they're about at the point where their U.S. trial has finished, or is will finish in a few days enrolling, uh, you know, the full 40,000 people that they were trying to enroll. And then it will just be a case of accruing enough cases to be able to determine if the vaccine works. Um, So we should know, I think in January or so, whether that vaccine uh, is going to work in a one dose formulation, they're testing it in two doses in uh, Europe. So that vaccine will probably contribute um, if it's successful and you know one would hope sanofi will have success in reformulating its vaccine and testing it and getting it out but that's going to take a while that's a vaccine that it's anticipated that it would require two doses and it is a vaccine that only requires fridge temperature storage so that could be quite useful um you know, I'm listing off a lot of things. I mean, obviously there are vaccines that China has produced. China's produced, you know, quite a lot of them and they are, you know, exercising vaccine diplomacy. They're making their vaccines available to parts of the world where they want to have influence. So that will contribute to um, curbing the pandemic as well.
0: Now, this has been... Quite the month. Uh, December 2020 has been so significant in terms of the approval of emergency use authorizations of the COVID vaccine. But there has been some challenges as well within these approvals. And you were following closely uh, the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee that was meeting to review the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine approval, and there were some dissenters in that approval
1: process. What does that mean, Helen? Well, you know, to be 100% clear, we don't know what that means. Sometimes at the end of the verPAC meetings, um, people who have, they'll go around and poll people who have voted against approval to ask them the reasons for their votes, that didn't happen yesterday, so you know it's not super clear at this moment why all the people who voted no voted no. There were four negative votes and one abstention uh, At least one of the people who voted no has made clear that he did it because he uh didn't um, agree with the the age um, the he's made clear he did it because he didn't agree with the notion that the vaccine should be used in people 16 and up. There's very little data for 16 and 17 year olds. Much Most of the data is on people 18 and older and he would have preferred that they'd taken the 16 and 17 year olds out, uh, but they did not. Um, the debate about whether or not to include 16- and 17-year-olds came up very late in the day at the VRBPAC meeting, and um, several people expressed the view that they were uncomfortable with the notion that the emergency use authorization could extend to 16- and 17-year-olds. They would have preferred it would be taken out. Um, so, they that might explain some of the negative votes.
0: Yes, it's too bad that they didn't actually poll uh, the abstention and the four negative votes. And, you know, that really tells me two things. Um, I think one, uh, it was a really long meeting and and I think fatigue might have uh, played a role in not uh, polling uh, the, the negative votes and the abstention. Um, And the fatigue uh, across the healthcare system is very real uh, at this point in the pandemic, no doubt. Um, And the second thing is uh, communication is just so important and there's so little margin for error on good communicating.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. You're entirely correct. And it's going to be so important going forward. I mean, one of the... Issues that came up in that verpack meeting was the news out of the UK, where they started to vaccinate this week, um, and you know almost instantly they had two cases of anaphylaxis uh, among uh, two nurses who were vaccinated, both of whom had allergies, severe allergies to I'm not sure what, but but they both you know carry epipens, so they 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 clearly have severe allergies and they developed anaphylaxis and um, you know this this is something that now people have to sort of try to tease out what does that mean does it mean that people who have egg allergies or uh, shellfish allergies or you know um, other significant allergies can't be vaccinated that seems to be what uh, the Brits are suggesting but you know, that's a lot of people, and you'd really want to get some precision about that before issuing that kind of a, a blanket um, uh, warning. But, uh, you know, the, the news of this has sort of gotten out ahead of um, any kind of official messaging about it. It's going, to be, it's going to be a challenge. People are not going to know what's, what to do.
0: Yeah, and who gets the vaccine is just so complicated. Uh we were mentioning earlier 16 and 17-year-olds. That's an age group where there isn't a lot of data and yet uh they're they're on that cusp um of being transmitters of the virus more so than uh let's say elementary school age children. Um so obviously, you know, that's why people are you know, wanting to include them in that uh, group of people to be vaccinated. Um, Pregnant women, you've written about this. Uh, The challenge of women of childbearing age, uh, there just isn't a lot of data out
1: there on that, right? There's no data on that. Um, You know, it's it's a... to my mind it's a tragedy people have been writing for years about the fact that there's a sort of i don't even know how to describe it it's almost like a paternalism the when people are are developing drugs and vaccines, they want to, you know, they test them first in healthy young adults because that's the population in which they think they could do the least damage if uh, anything goes wrong. And they only get around to testing in vulnerable populations. And we think about pregnant w- people and children as really vulnerable populations. They only do that last after they have evidence from um, healthy adults that it's, you know, these, this new drug or this new vaccine is safe. It appears to be safe in, um, you know, healthy adults. There have been people arguing for years that uh this does a disservice to women who are pregnant and women who lac- are lactating because what, what happens is the research doesn't really get done and then something comes forward, it's approved, and there are no data on which to to gauge whether or not it's safe for pregnant and lactating uh, people to, to use the drug or the vaccine um, you know, the same researchers who've been warning about this for a long time started warning about this last February, you know, arguing that when vaccine trials started, they needed to include people who were pregnant. It hasn't happened. And um, at yesterday's Verpac meeting, uh, Pfizer said that it is in the process of completing um, animal trials that are called DART trials, that stands for developmental and reproductive toxicity trials. Those trials are a precursor to human trials. Um, you you need to effectively get animal data to look for any evidence of, um, you know, that a vaccine might Cause damage to a developing fetus before you start to test in people, but they are just doing that work now. And meanwhile, you know, in the United States, the vaccine could be started. They could start to administer this within, you know, forty eight hours. And so they won't have an answer when vaccine you know becomes available. And there will be pregnant women who are standing there trying to figure out on their own, should I try to get this vaccine? Yes, it's so difficult. And of course, uh, pregnant
0: women and lactating women, they are teachers, they are healthcare workers, Um, they cut across many of the groups that we consider
1: to be priority groups, yeah, that's that's correct. I mean, the CDC estimates that at any one time, there are about three hundred and thirty thousand uh, pregnant people among healthcare workers in the United States. It's a big number. It is a big number, and they are at the front of the vaccine line. And and there are no data on whether you know on which to gauge whether or not these vaccines are safe for them. Even on the
0: topic of kids. Um So if your child is otherwise a healthy child, you can feel pretty good about them either not being vaccinated until they get older or sort of being at the end of the line once more studies can take place. But if your child has another type of disease challenge that makes them particularly vulnerable to this virus, it's a pretty horrible situation as a parent. Uh, You know, Just to, you know, basically be told that you're not at the front of the line.
1: I don't disagree, but I don't think that's the reason why they're not a priority. You know, because the um, rate of serious illness in young children in particular is so much lower than it is amongst older adults, young kids we're always going to be at the back of the line for this vaccine. Uh, You know, when, when supplies are scarce, they're, they're just not the priority because they don't need it as much. Um, And so in some senses, that's a benefit because it gives people time to do the studies. I mean um, Pfizer has, a little bit of data in 16 and 17 year olds and it recently started to vaccinate down to 12. 12 is sort of a, a tipping point below that they have to do uh what are called dose de-escalation studies they have to figure out whether or not they need to give um smaller doses to younger kids so they would start with 11 year olds and test the dose in them and then go down to 10 year olds um to try to sort of hit the sweet spot for how much antigen to give to be protective but also not to be too reactogenic not to generate too many side effects um you know that work will take some time but there is time because you know when supplies are scarce kids are not going to be vaccinated and um and uh so so th- those data can be generated but you know to your point about parents of children who have other health concerns i mean that's another layer of anxiety still and i don't know how quickly people are going to be able to generate data that will tell you that yes if your child Not only do we know that this is a safe and effective vaccine for your child, for a healthy child, but it's also something that your child can take safely as well. Now, we need to study the
0: impact of the vaccine in real-world conditions. Um, Trials focus on safety, and we should all feel confident in the data coming out of those trials. But we also need to study the vaccine and how it works in real-world conditions and across the general population. Uh, when you're speaking with experts in the United States, um, do we feel like we're ready to do this research? What are you hearing?
1: There are tons of things that need to be studied, and there's really important questions that can only be answered when vaccines are used broadly. You know, clinical trials are never going to to um, give you all of the answers. So things like, you know, how will be protective we'll only know that after they've been in use for a while um, uh, And you know we talked before about transmission will people who get vaccinated still be able to be infected and transmit the virus but just not have symptoms once this, the vaccines are in broad use you know studies will show us that um, yes People are starting to look at the trials that need to be done. Um, Yesterday at the VRBPAC meeting, uh, Nancy Messonnier from the CDC was talking about some of the trials they're setting up already to try to gauge um, real world effectiveness of the vaccines in healthcare workers, for instance. Um, You know, it's really, it's clear from, from previous um, vaccine rollouts that um, the efficacy that you see in a clinical trial and the effectiveness you see in the real world are not always the same, that typically um, the real world uh, performance of a vaccine will not be as high as the clinical trial efficacy because, um, Clinical trials typically enroll mostly healthy people, uh, even though these ones, you know, had to make a point of including older adults and um, and people who had some of the um, health conditions that put you at high risk of, of um, bad disease with COVID. They, they were still probably, in the main, a healthier population than you know, the population at large. And so when you start to give the vaccine to millions, tens of millions and more people, you know, it it will probably turn out that, you know, the Pfizer vaccine isn't 95% effective. What percent effective it is, you know, those kinds of trials that you were talking about will tell us.
0: So much to be proud of and so much to be learned at the same time.
1: These vaccines, you know by the time they reach average people, will have been tested in tens of thousands of people it 's also true that, that that there can be things that are rare side effects, something that happens in you know at a rate of a one in a million doses given you 're never going to see those until you start to use vaccines very broadly and so um, there are also lots of efforts underway to try to ensure that um, any kind of safety signal that might arise will uh, be spotted quickly and, um, you know, a lot of effort will go into trying to study whether or not what's being seen is something that's being caused by the vaccine or something that happened on its own and was only, you know, temporally associated with vaccine receipt. Looks like... It, they might be linked because it happened at the same time, but is really not caused by vaccine.
0: Yeah, it's definitely uh, a lot to tease out, and there's still much to to be learnt uh, during this pandemic. Um, you've written that vaccine production has been forever changed by this experience, and really, that's good news, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I wrote was that, you know, pandemic vaccine production has been forever changed. It may be true that vaccine production in general has been, but, um, but, you know, for years, people have been trying to figure out how the world could respond quickly to a pandemic that would require a vaccine. And, um, and, you know, it's never been clear that the process of developing a vaccine from scratch um, and and producing it at scale could be done as quickly as it has been done. It's it's really a remarkable accomplishment.
0: Last question before I let you go, Helen. Um... You've covered SARS, bird flu, Ebola, Zika, and now uh, COVID-19. And frankly, you've done this heroically, uh, given how long and difficult uh, a haul it's been. Um, what has been your biggest uh, surprise or two of uh, 2020?
1: I have been astonished to see what the um, impact of layering politics onto a pandemic would be, it never occurred to me that people would, who were you know in the midst of a pandemic, whose communities were being affected who were losing neighbors it never occurred to me that people would choose to believe that the threat they were that was being described to them was a hoax because of their political beliefs that never occurred to me i'm still trying to figure out how to make sense of um the way politics has has um, undermined the response at least in this country to the pandemic that has been a huge surprise. The other surprise is a is a good one um you know i I have been warning people for months now that uh, we needed to temper our expectations of how well these vaccines would work because typically vaccines um, that target respiratory pathogens don't work all that well. Um, And I, also was telling people that we needed to be very careful because um, vaccines are very hard to make and uh, you, you know, you would have more failures and successes. And in fact, I think there's an estimate that um, only like 17% of vaccines that start in clinical trials are, come through the end of the, the pipeline. Currently, we haven't had any failures uh you know the first vaccine that that reported out reported out at an astonishing level of efficacy um even people like tony fauci were <laughs> stunned um and you know that's been like a very pleasant surprise <laughs> yeah I uh, I wasn't expecting it, but I'll take it. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. There's been uh, too few of those in 2020. Helen Branswell, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for your careful and enriching reporting that you do on infectious diseases, particularly during this year of pandemic. Thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you. This is our last episode of Bat Risk for the year 2020, and I want to thank you all for tuning in and for giving me the opportunity to have these conversations. Your feedback is appreciated and welcome, so please rate and review the show on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at 2020network if you haven't done that already. We'll be back in January with a new episode. Until then, these holidays will be very different and more lonely for many of us. Please stay safe and remember, there's little risk in being kind to one another. Happy Holidays.